This podcast isn't very long, but I hope you will find that it's worth your time. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second after this message from our sponsor. First question, who discovered America? Who discovered Australia? Well, you could say Christopher Columbus or James Cook, but you would be wrong because there were already people in both places by the time they got there. What those men did is reported back to the rest of Europe what they had seen. And once people had seen it, they couldn't unsee it. Suddenly, those things were on the radar. So the question is, who discovered time? Because time, modern time, time informed by choices, by opportunity cost, is a really new idea. In 1974, Marshall Salins wrote a breakthrough book called Stone Age Economics. If you took someone from the Stone Age, from only 5,000 years ago, 10,000 years ago, and adopted them as an infant, they would grow up to be indistinguishable from the people around us today. And yet, the world of the caveman, Stone Age economics, was really different than the world of today. He estimates that people had to work two or three hours a day to forage and find enough food to thrive on. So what did they do the rest of the time? Did they check their email? Did they build giant sculptures? Did they engage in never-ending debates with each other? Well, we don't know about the last one, but we assert that they spend most of their time having a good day, lying around, chatting, napping, not doing much of anything else, sort of the way you would expect some healthy lions or tigers to act in the bush. Then things began to change. Let's fast forward a little bit to the late 1800s. In an extraordinary confluence of idea and success, H.G. Wells, the guy who did War of the Worlds, invented the time machine. Not only did he write the best-selling, most important time machine book of all time, But he invented the idea of the time machine. James Glick wrote the definitive book on time travel, and in it he points out that Wells invented it. He discovered it. So what happens with the time machine? Well, they're fictional, of course, but you can get in your time machine and go back in time or forward in time. Suddenly, time is an axis the same way left, right, up, and down are axes. Suddenly, we think a lot about how we are choosing to spend our time. Is it worth the energy? Spend our time. We spend our time like a resource. We use it like a tool. But that's new. Opportunity cost is the economic idea that every single time we spend time, we are making a choice about what to not spend it on. There's a buffet in Coney Island that used to make some of the best falafel in New York City. And as you went through the buffet line, 
The rule was simple. All you can eat as long as it fits on your plate. So the question is, what are you going to put on your plate? Because any item you put on your plate is taking room from something else you could have put on your plate. There is an opportunity cost. So back to this idea of time travel. My favorite time travel book is called Replay by Ken Grimwood. It is remarkable. And in the book, he posits that involuntarily, someone keeps getting thrown back in time to relive his life. When it first starts, I think he goes back to being 14, and he lives that life for 10 or 20 years before he gets thrown back again to do it again, each time a slightly shorter duration. So his consciousness remains as if he is on one timeline, but he gets to relive his actions. When you think about this, it's really sort of disturbing. What would you change? Because if you changed something in your 15-year-old self or 19-year-old self, maybe your kids wouldn't end up being born. Maybe those key events of your life that you remember would never happen. And one of the things that goes on, which is common in any novel about immortality, is that people get bored. Once we know we have unlimited time, once we feel like opportunity cost starts to go down, oh, don't worry about whether you watch The Sopranos tonight, you'll get a chance to watch it tomorrow, we get bored. We are actually hooked on opportunity cost. We are emotionally hooked on constantly making this choice about how we will choose to spend our time. Qantas Airways just introduced a 19-hour flight, perhaps the longest flight you can take today. My first reaction was, well, you're never going to get that day back. You know what? You never get any day back. Because as we go through time, we don't get a do-over. Another great book about time is a trilogy by Ben Winters called The Last Policeman. So try to imagine this. There's a huge asteroid headed for Earth. It's going to crash within a year. It's so big we can't do anything about it. Word leaks out. Everyone has a year to live. What would you do? Well, in the novel, some people go crazy. They leave their spouse. They hit the road. They participate in orgies or they murder people. What the hell? We're only going to live another year. Some people kill themselves. They can't deal with the fact that the end is coming on a certain date. And some people, like the title character, go to work. Like the woman at the diner, they go to work. Because after all, and that's the metaphor, maybe you only have a year left anyway. So one of the key questions of our lives is, are we going to pass the time or spend the time? When we think about the huge contributions that Newton made to math and to the way we see physics, what would happen if he had spent way less time wasting time on alchemy and more time developing the next thing? What would have happened if Darwin hadn't been so afraid and hadn't stalled for 10 or 20 years before he published his book? What would those contributions have been like if he had been able to keep working on his big idea. Marcel Duchamp, who I mention all too often, 
who was one of the great conceptual artists and a thief, took 20 or 30 years off to play chess. Spend the time, pass the time, waste the time. Opportunity cost keeps showing up. And we can't talk about time without talking about special relativity, without talking about Einstein, without talking about the twins paradox. Two identical twins are born, and when they turn 18, one of them gets in a really fast rocket ship, and he heads off on a mission that to him lasts about two years. When he gets back, his twin brother is 30 years older. So who exactly is living their life at what pace? Is getting more done, clearing more email, making more connections over and over again as fast as we can, racing through the buffet line again and again? Is that the way we should be spending our time? What about the people who are binge-watching video on Netflix? They are clearly passing the time. What do they get for all of the opportunities they passed up? And then, after all this racing for 80 or 100 or 120 years, because we are not immortal, when we get to the end, is someone going to keep us alive against our wishes? Are we going to be forced to suffer for a year when time feels like it takes 20 years? Because it seems like we've decided to spend tons and tons of effort and money and emotion to change the way people at the end of their time engage with their time. So time is one of the only things that's truly under our control. If you're put in prison for 50 years, someone has taken away your freedom, but they haven't taken away the way You engage with your time. When we sit you in front of the internet with all of those things to click on, and when we persuade you to swipe right or swipe left or dig deeper into the endless rabbit hole of social networking, we are giving you options on how to spend your time, on what narrative we will bring to the time that we are spending, on how we look at opportunity cost. So if you had H.G. Wells's time machine. If you were in replay and were sent back a day, let's just do a day. If you had yesterday to do over, what would you do differently? And then the last question, of course, is you do have tomorrow to do over. How will you choose to spend it? Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in a second with a question from last time. I hope you're not too busy to stick around for that. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Reading Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As always, I love to hear from you. Please, don't hesitate. To submit a question, to do so, visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and press the appropriate button. Hi, Seth. This is Ryan from Salem, Oregon. I recently decided to take on a full-time job for the first time in about 10 years. I've been self-employed for quite a long time before this, 
And I still have a lot of creative projects, books, and a podcast that I really want to focus on. However, I haven't had the emotional, mental, and physical energy that I was hoping that I would have from no longer needing to hustle and find new clients because now I have this full-time job. So I guess my question is, do you have any suggestions for how to carve out the necessary time to do the kinds of things that I want to do while still juggling the bureaucracy and the nuances of working a full-time job? Thanks so much for what you do. I really appreciate it. I love this question because it applies to every single person who's listening to this. Here's what the late Zig Ziglar said. Have you ever met somebody who didn't eat lunch, who all afternoon is walking around saying, I can't believe it. I was so busy. I didn't even get to eat lunch today. That's sort of rare among people who are listening to this podcast. Most of us, if we choose to eat lunch every single day. In fact, there are lots of things we do every single day. The challenge is to do things that you want to do by making them not optional, I'll get around to it, I'll carve out the time, but to make them on the inside of the circle, not the outside, to make them things that we always do. Esther Dyson, the great investor and pundit, has gone for a swim at least a mile every day for as long as I have known her, and we met in 1983. How does Esther Dyson find the time? Well, actually, what she does is she always goes for a swim, and then she finds the time for the other parts of what's important to her. That if you put something inside the circle, then you always do it. Jeffrey Katzenberg, every morning, makes between one and one and a half hours of phone calls, one after another, working his way through a list of people he calls all the time. Hey, what's up? It's Jeffrey. Okay, talk to you later. Every single day, just like eating lunch, just like Esther Dyson going for a swim. So you only need to make the decision once. Isaac Asimov decided once to write for six hours every single day. You may have decided to take a job that has a staff meeting every Friday at 3 o'clock. And so there's a staff meeting, not because you need a staff meeting, but because it's Friday at 3 o'clock. So what I would argue is that if you care about lifelong learning, you will spend an hour every single day reading something. And no, you're not allowed to shortcut it. You're not allowed to put it off till tomorrow. It doesn't matter what else is going on. This is something you do every single day. The rest of your life is carved out of what's left, not the other way around. If we can reimagine it that way, it's pretty stunning how we can choose to invest our time. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Hi, it's Bernadette Jiwa, and I'm here to talk to you about the Story Skills Workshop. It's no secret that great stories are powerful catalysts for change, or that great storytellers have this unique ability to persuade, influence, and inspire us to connect and collaborate. 
you know that if you want your idea to spread or you want to match it to the people that you hope to serve, you need a better story. And that's why Seth and I created the Story Skills Workshop to help you to tell better stories and make your ideas matter. I hope you'll check it out at thestoryskillsworkshop.com. I just don't think it's possible or probable in, in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know, and none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like we have data. What all MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas. You got access to information. That's awesome. But when are you going to show up? When are you going to face that blank page? When are you going to face the possibilities within you? When are you going to face those fears? I'm not going to let you hide. You got to show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple. It sounds very commonsensical. But it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.